Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll study tonight verses 1 through 10. If you recall, as you're turning there, let me remind you, in case you don't recall, and that is that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is in charge of, he's not an apostle, but he's an apostolic representative. And he's in charge of many different churches in the city of Ephesus. And many of the elders there, he, uh, Timothy has a, a leadership role over them. And Paul is writing Timothy so Timothy might teach the churches how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. As we come to chapter 6, this is the last major section of the letter, and we see some more various groups and how these groups ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the last major section. And Paul will introduce, actually he will amplify a principle that he's introduced already, and that is the, the idea that attitudes, attitudes lead to actions. Actions don't happen in a vacuum. Attitudes happen first, and then actions happen after that. And sometimes, Paul says, we can look at someone's actions, and we can really trace back into their attitudes. Now, we can't always do that. Sometimes we, we think we're clairvoyant, and we say, well, I saw what you did, I know what you were thinking. But there are times when Paul says, particularly with regard to false teachers, that we can see what they're doing, and then he traces back the attitude that was behind these errors that they were making. The first two verses, actually, Paul speaks to a category that we really don't have in our country right now. The, the category exists worldwide, but it doesn't exist in the United States so much, and it's the category of slaves. How are slaves to respond to their masters? He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them, because they are brethren. But let them serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. And then he says, teach and preach these things. So Paul is speaking to this category, slaves, and tells them that they should have the proper attitude, which will lead to the proper actions toward their masters. He tells them that they should regard their masters, they should consider their masters worthy of honor. The key thing to remember is that even slaves had an ambassadorship before the world. They represented Jesus Christ before the world, and Paul wanted nothing in their behavior, nothing whatsoever in their behavior, to hurt their ministry, to hurt their witness or their testimony for Jesus Christ. Christian slaves who had believing masters even had more of a reason to show honor to their masters, and that was because their masters were fellow brothers, and perhaps fellow sisters in Jesus Christ. They, they even, they even were, were worthy of more consideration, more honor, than the masters that they had that were unbelievers. Now, Paul has spoken in other places about how the masters should treat the slaves. He doesn't address that issue here, and that bothers a lot of people. When I was in seminary, I remember a knockdown, drag-out, fight in one of my classes between some of the some of the students who felt like they were descendants of slaves and some in in some of the rest of us who weren't descendants of slaves over over the issue here why didn't Paul condemn slavery in this passage and they got real mad about it and one of the things I told them was be careful my friend be careful getting really mad at what God the Holy Spirit did not inspire the apostle Paul to do don't, don't get too judgmental with the Spirit. Now, the, the Scriptures, interestingly enough, they neither condone nor condemn slavery, per se. It was a human institution at the time. It was a human institution in our country at one time as well. Now, the more you know about history, 
And I know that's a subject a lot, a lot of us, I mean, I, partake, I love it. I, I think one of the biggest sins that a teacher in school can make is to teach history if you don't like it. Because history is a fascinating subject, and sometimes so you'll, have, you'll get a good history professor, you'll love it, you'll get a bad history professor, you think it's the most boring subject on the planet. It's not. It's fascinating. But the more you know about history, particularly history of this time, you'll see that, that some of the ideas that we have about slavery were not, is not exactly consistent with the way that it really was. Now, one thing the Bible does condemn, the Bible always condemns man's inhumanity to man. Always. The Bible always condemns one human being being cruel toward another human being. But we don't need to step over the line of what the Scriptures reveal and condemn the Scriptures for not condemning an institution like that. Remember, though, the Bible never, ever condones man's inhumanity to man. Never. But the Bible never specifically condemns slavery. Now, it's a passage like this that some people in the, in the early times of our history used to promote slavery, and others got real mad because it didn't seem to condemn slavery. That is not what Paul is doing here. It's going outside the scope of his intentions, and that's where you make hermeneutical or interpretive mistakes. When you go outside the, the intentions of a text and try to foist opinions upon it, that's when we make mistakes. Paul is simply denouncing man's inhumanity to man in his writings. He is not promoting slavery. He's not condemning the institution either. It was a reality at the time. And it was not up to Christian slaves at the time to revolt because it would hurt their ministry. It would hurt their ambassadorship. It would hurt their testimony before the world. And as far as Paul was concerned, it was more important that they have a good testimony before the world than they gain their freedom. And that was the reality. So Paul tells Timothy to teach and preach these things. Now, I'm sure that even then, some of the slaves didn't particularly want to hear it. And a slave in, in a Greek household, like, like Ephesus would have been, was probably a doctor or a lawyer or an educator. Uh, it could have been a household servant, but the slaves performed, those who were in slavery were probably there because their nation had been conquered in some sort of war. It's, it's typical of the Romans, particularly. If, if you, the Romans needed money, or if you looked at them crosswise, they would go conquer your country, take all the best people back to Rome to, to serve as servants and slaves. Now, these servants and slaves could work their way out of it, unlike in American slavery, but uh, we just need to be very careful. I am in no way personally condoning slavery, but I don't want to go beyond what the text itself says. The text itself doesn't address it, so it's, it's inappropriate for us to address an issue where the text doesn't in this case. But remember this. The scriptures always condemn man's inhumanity to man. So there's an overarching principle. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, we're introduced to another category, of, or another group, that Paul is, is going to demonstrate how they should behave in the household of God. This particular group he's bringing up now is, again, the false teachers. Now, he started this, the epistle with this. He mentioned it in the beginning, and now he's coming back to it at the end. You think that was a problem in Ephesus? <laughs> I suspect that it was. Otherwise, Paul's not going to spend so much time on the, the ideas of false teachers. Now, in verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. 
but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. What he's talking about here is not so much the doctrine that he taught just in the previous two verses. He's talking about the entirety of his letter here. If anybody advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with doctrine conforming to godliness. Now, wait a minute, there's a problem right there, isn't there? If they don't agree with the Lord Jesus Christ, then who are we to say, well, hey, I'm sure they're helping a lot of people. No, they're not. They're hurting a lot of people. Now, you and I both, Paul was an apostle. I want to I urge us to be careful. We could go around all day long knocking everybody. And then we're not going to have an audience of anybody. Nobody's going to listen to a word we say if everything you say, everything that comes out of your mouth is negative. But when someone is not teaching the truth, we may very well say, I understand they're a very nice person. I don't particularly care for their theology. Or I understand that they have a wonderful way of expressing their thoughts, but I don't particularly care for their thoughts because their thoughts are not scriptural. You can say that. But you've got to tell the truth. You don't have to do it in meanness. You need to still need to do it in love. And I don't think Paul is doing it in meanness here. He's actually doing it in love to the people he's writing to. There were false teachers in Ephesus. And it was a problem. Because this is a matter of life and death. This is not a joke. This is not a philosophy class. This is not somewhere whatever view you want to take is okay. It's not okay. When I see people take views that are under this ministry that are contrary to the Word of God, it breaks my heart. When I see people make decisions that are contrary to sound thinking and to sound doctrine, it breaks my heart. And I can't make the decisions for you. But I can't pretend that it's okay. No, it's not okay. When I see people leave and, and chase the things of the world, it breaks my heart. It's not okay. And it wasn't okay to Paul either. So if anyone advocates a different doctrine, now what he's done here, I told you in the beginning, attitudes are reflected in our actions. Now what he's done is he's gone to the action first, and then he's going to move back to the attitude. But false teachers, he will teach us, are marked by false attitudes, which lead to sinful actions. And we're not to follow in their footsteps. We should learn, in this case, to keep material possessions in their proper perspective, having as our priority in life the glorification of God and not the accumulation of things. Now, Paul's going to do something here that I think in our day we probably have seen. At least if we've been watching, we've seen it. We've seen pastors who were, or television preachers, I don't, I don't know that they were pastors so much, but preachers who were more interested in the accumulation of things than they were in their own integrity. And some of these became very famous cases. They were interested more in things than they were in proclaiming the truth. They were more interested in things than they were in Jesus Christ. And it looks, I mean, I just as one who observed it, I certainly don't have any inside information on it. It looks like Jesus Christ said, okay, if you're more interested in things than you are in me, if you're more interested in things so that you'll, you'll put yourself in a position of bringing disgrace to the church, I'm going to let you hang out to dry. And what you thought was going to happen in private, I'm going to let everybody see it. In public, and that happened to some very well-known people. Went to jail for it too. At least one of them did. He's out of jail now. And I understand he's he's a little bit back to where he ought to be. At least closer than he was. It's uh, it's difficult to say. But he's only one. But Paul speaks first about their 
<coughs> he speaks first about their actions, then he goes back to their attitudes. The false teachers in Ephesus advocated doctrine that was different from what the scriptures, from what Jesus Christ, from what the apostles taught. They advocated things that were different. They disagreed with the teachings of the Lord Jesus that fostered spiritual health in those that heard and responded to them. And they rejected the doctrine that conforms to and results in godly behavior. One note about this word godly, it's it's eusebea. It means, according to the lexicon, behavior reflecting correct religious beliefs and attitudes. Behavior reflecting correct religious beliefs and attitudes. Did you see, even in the definition of that word, it, it was it was well chosen by the Apostle Paul. Of course, he's doing it under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It, it, did you see, in, in the definition of that word, you had attitudes leading to actions? Now, if it was right attitudes that led to right actions, it is termed eusebeia in the Greek language. And that has traditionally come down into English, it goes way back, the English term, godliness with a little g. And this is a, this is a term that some like and some don't. I don't have as big a problem with it as, as some people do. Like all this means, godliness means it's, it's, it is behavior that is conforming to God's standards. That's godliness. It doesn't mean you're God. It doesn't mean you're pretending to be. In fact, that would be the opposite of what it means. It means that you recognize your place. But if you, if, you don't prefer, if you prefer not to use that particular term, you may want to use a term like an appropriate spiritual life or the march towards spiritual maturity. Any one of those would fit the bill. But it's right thinking, right attitudes leading to right behavior. That's eusebeia. Make sense so far? Okay. So if anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. See, if, if it's not a doctrine that is going to lead to proper behavior, to pro- not a doctrine that's going to lead to proper attitudes, to proper behavior, then something's wrong with it. And that's the attitude that these false teachers did. Let me be blunt but loving at the same time. Sometimes because of the nurturing nature that our mothers and, and females have, you were more susceptible to this than, than us mean old crotchety men. Because you want people to have the right motivations, oftentimes. You, you, want, you want to think the best of everybody. And Paul is saying, listen, there are some people that don't have your best interest in mind. There are some people that just simply don't have your best interest in mind. And these are people who teach things that are contrary to the Word of God. So it's really kind of simple. You know what your responsibility is? To know what's in the Word of God. And then you measure what somebody says, not against how bright their smile is, and not against how long they can keep that smile going in any one particular sermon. But you measure it against the truth or lack thereof that they're teaching. As simple as that. And if it conforms with sound doctrine, then they're doing a good job. Support them, pray for them, love them. If it doesn't, then we're not to follow in their footsteps. Simple as that. Makes sense? I, I hope that it does. He is conceited. Now, see, if you don't hold to sound doctrine, if you're going to reject the doctrines of Jesus Christ, I'd say you were conceited. I'd say you had a little pride problem. I'd say you're just like your daddy. I will be like the Most High God. If you're going to reject, reject God's truth, yes, you're conceited. In fact, we probably couldn't even, in a euphemistic way, say, yeah, he's a nice guy. No! 
this is it's much harder than it looks on the surface. This is much more convicting than it looks through it with a casual reading. He is conceited and understands nothing. <laughs> it's getting stronger, isn't it? You know, the, the Apostle Paul doesn't pull any punches here. But he has a morbid or a deadly or a, a sick, that would be another way to put it. He's got a sick interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. You know, there's some people that just wake up in the morning trying to figure out a way to argue with you. And I don't particularly care to be around those people very much. If everything's an argument, I mean, you probably don't like them either. Matter of fact, once I get the drift, I try to run the other way when I see them coming. Hey, love to talk to you. A little busy right now. <laughs> you know? Now, there's people that are trained to argue with you. Do you know that? I mean, they come to your door two by two. They're not really trained in the scriptures. They're trained in argumentation. I don't know if you know that or not, but that's the truth. They are trained in how to argue. They're not tra- they're, they're trained in how to debate. They've, they've got this one agenda. It's a very narrow agenda, and they want to argue with you about something. And the more false they're teaching, the more angry they'll become, and the more they want to argue. You know what? When those folks come to my door, I'm not going to argue with them over blood transfusions. I'm not going to argue with them over whether, they, whether they're going to serve in the military, and I'm not going to argue with them over whether they want to celebrate birthdays or whether they want to put up a Christmas tree. It's just, I'm just not going to get wrapped up in those kind of sick disputes, sick disputes about trivialities. Now, I'm not saying that, that uh, things like serving in the military are, are trivialities, but when compared to their eternal destiny, yes, they are. You know what I'll talk to them about? The deity of Christ and how one is justified before God. That's what I'm going to talk to them about. I'm not going to get wrapped up in morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words. Have you ever noticed it gets real semantic sometimes with people? And the more semantic sometimes it gets, the more you realize they're just here to argue with you. You can spot it as soon as they start getting all twisted up. And at the end you say, are you sure we're not talking about the same thing? You know, well, maybe we are. Okay, then why don't we just argue for the last half hour? We need to make sure that we don't get into controversies about and disputes simply about words because out of these things arrive a lot of bad things. Now, look back in the first chapter. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths, endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Then he gives a contrast. The goal of our instruction is love. Now, this was something that was important enough for him to begin the epistle with it. And now he comes back to it at the end. And remember, he's, he's discussing this epistle, how one ought to behave in the household of God. There is no place, there is no place for believers tolerating false teaching in the local church. Now, the first local church you need to be concerned about is your own. <laughs> And that is first and foremost. And sometimes people run off thinking there's false teaching going on when they haven't, when they're not knowledgeable themselves. And I know that happens. I know it happens more than I would like to see it happen. And if there's a question, then I then I would certainly love for you to sit down and and just discuss it, because no nobody wants to teach something that's false. We certainly, at least with regard to our doctoral statement, we are as as uh, orthodox as I think that you can possibly be when it comes to sound orthodox theology. But first and foremost, it concerns your own local church. And then if somebody asks you and you know, then tell them. If somebody asks you about a particular person and you don't know, don't. 
It doesn't need to be a personal attack, but you can't get soft on lies and on false teaching and expect God to honor you. Well, that hey, listen, that, I, I hear she's very good. You know, well, no, I don't hear that, frankly. I mean, what I hear is exactly the opposite. So what do you want me to say? <laughs> you know, if you don't want the honest truth answered, don't ask me about somebody because it puts me in a real difficult position. I'm going to tell you the truth. It may, be, it may be a better answer than you expect, maybe one that's not as good as you expect. But we, we have to be careful about some of these folks because the result of the false teaching ends up being envy, strife, abusive language. This is where we get the word blasphemy. Now, it's not talking about blaspheming God, but it's talking about just, just throwing abusive terms at people and evil suspicions. Constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of truth who suppose, now this is the last part that Paul almost throws in here at the end, but don't let it slip past, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Here's where attitudes are going to lead to actions. Their attitude of of rejecting sound doctrine, that action as well, but the attitude of conceit that went behind that also speaks to their motive for being in the ministry in the first place. Just just turn on the television tonight if you want an object lesson in this and watch how they raise money at the end. You know, get close to the TV. Now, come on. Put your hand on the TV. <laughs> Let me get this rag. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to put it on the TV right now. Now, you send me, no joke, $1,000 tonight. Whatever you just prayed for when you put your hand on the TV, it's going to come to pass within 48 hours. Amen. <laughs> Brother. And for you, it will be 2000 <laughs> That is absolutely silly. But one of the things behind this conceit is that these people assume that this Eusebia, in this case it's kind of a false proclamation, but getting into the ministry is, is getting into the ministry business. That's not the right reason to be in ministry. You can test yourself if you're in ministry. Why am I here? Would I do it for nothing if that's what the Lord had for me? And if the answer is yes, then you're okay. If the answer is no way, I wouldn't do it for nothing. Then something's not right. Paul is in no way, he is in no way proclaiming that it is wrong for one who's in the ministry to earn his, his livelihood by that ministry. In fact, in the previous chapter, he said quite the opposite. So those, who, those elders who preach and teach well are worthy of double honor, not, not only respect, but financial provision as well. That's not what he's talking about at all here. He's not, he's not rejecting that, but he is rejecting people who do ministry primarily for financial gain. Not, not in a secondary way, you know, that, you know, to pay the house bill or whatever. He's talking about people that are going into it to make money. I remember I talked to a fellow in seminary, and he was a, he was a good guy, but he was always complaining about everything. And I, I kind of care. I kind of like my seminary, so I didn't particularly care for him complaining about everything. And finally, uh, finally he complained about studying. He complained about the language courses. You know, the, why should we have to do that? And on and on and on. And finally I said, why are you here? I'm just trying to figure that out, you know. What are you doing here? If you don't want to take the languages, if you don't want to take the theology courses, you know, if you don't want to do Bible exposition, why are you here? He said, I need to get a job, man. I said, you got to be kidding me. As expensive as this is, and as much time and effort that you're putting into it, and you're doing it to get a job, I said, run the other way. You know, get out of here as quickly as you can. Save up the money that you were going to spend for tuition next semester and go to business school. 
You know, enroll in University of Texas, get, go through their MBA program. If that's all you want, it's a job. Now, there's nothing wrong with being an MBA. My brother's an MBA. I'm not, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, don't get into ministry to make money. Now we get to the end of the conceit, and we see the false teachers were in it to make money. Now, wasn't that prophetic in terms of today's culture? There's, there's some that it, we don't know their motivations, but we can see their actions, and we can understand something of their motivations by their actions. In verse 6, he almost seems to contradict himself, but I hope you can see the tone here. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. You see, if it's done right, godliness is a tremendously profitable enterprise when it's accompanied by contentment. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that it's a tremendously profitable enterprise when it comes to certain currencies of our day, the dollar or the yen or the grivna. Not that kind of currency, but it is extremely profitable when it comes to things that are eternal. And that's the only thing you're going to take with you anywhere. anyway, and that's what Paul is going to say here. Godliness actually is a means of great gain. He's left the false teachers now, and he's telling us how we should respond. As opposed to, this is the picture that he sets up. They disregard the doctrines of Christ. The motivation behind that was conceit. And then finally, we have a deeper motivation. They're doing it for the money. The contrast is, how should you behave? Should you be an ambassador for Christ for the money? No, I don't think so. And this, I'm sure the elders of the church were, were in view here as well. Should that happen for money? No, it shouldn't. Again, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be compensated. But is that your primary motivation? Is Christ at the center of your life? Or is money at the center of your life? Now, that's an honest and succinct question that you've got to answer yourself. Is Christ at the center of your life? Or are things at the center of your life? You have to answer that. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. You know the old, old joke, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It just doesn't happen. You don't take anything with you. And it's, um, it's kind of silly sometimes when you see people, personal taste, that's what, it's up to you, whatever you want to do, but when you see people being buried with, with jewels and you know, expensive things all over them, you know, they're not taking them with them. It's not King Tut. You know, you're going up there just your soul. And isn't that interesting? When you go, that's the only thing you're going to take with you. You know, some people buy a suit before they go, so it's the suit they want to be buried in. Well, that's fine. That's the way they want to be looked at. But you're not taking that suit with you. The only thing going is your soul. Now, whatever's in that soul is going with you. But the, the things that are going with the soul are the things eternal, not the things temporal. Again, this is, uh, make sure you understand, Paul is not arguing against things. He's not. He's not arguing against money. He's not arguing against rich people. That's not the point at all. He's arguing against improper priorities. If the priority of your life is to get rich and then get richer, then just understand you're not taking it with you. He says in verse 8, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, this, the, the way he's using this food and covering or food and clothing. The, the covering could also be uh, a roof over your head. This is a figure of speech that includes all of life's necessities. Not all of our wants, but all of our necessities. Uh, I think all of us have been in a position where we had some of life's necessities taken away, maybe even for a temporary period of time. Maybe it was your health. Maybe it was your ability to earn a living. 
Maybe it's your ability to pay the bills. Maybe, maybe there's a lot of maybes there. But when that was returned, didn't you appreciate it so much more? At least for six, seven hours or so until you got back to the old routine. What Paul says here is, in terms of contentment, if there's food in my stomach, if there's clothing on my back, if I have the necessities of life, and the necessities of life in our day and age would include gasoline for your car. Okay, I mean, they, they would include, you know, to be able to go and, and, and do some work so that you could uh, uh, support your family, support yourself. Those are, those are things that are perfectly legitimate. As long as Christ is at the center, then everything else revolving around that is going to work out just fine. You put the things in the center. You put earning a living in front of Jesus Christ. It's not going to work out anymore. And that's what he says. If we have these things, we should be content. Now, remember what Paul said at another time in his life? I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find. He says, look, I was really wealthy one time. Now, I've known what it's like to be hungry and not have anything. But I've learned to be content. The virtue of contentment is not something most of us are born with. Every now and then I run across a person that's naturally content. But most of us have to be taught to be content. And sometimes the way we're taught to be content is the things that we are grasping onto so strongly that we just can't let go of that. God says, oh, yes, you can. Here you go. Now, there it went. Now, where's your focus? Is it on just grabbing that back? Or you look and say, Father, you know what? I was so wrong. I was so focused on the things of this life that I got my eyes off of you. You know, help me never to do that again. Purge me of that attitude. Help me to keep my focus upon you. Now, he loves you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to make sure you have food in your belly and, and a car to take care of the things that you need or, or transportation or whatever it may be. You wonder why sometimes in other countries it seems as though their churches are growing faster and deeper, not necessarily wider, but, but deeper. They don't have anything. And then they get some stuff, and they get to be just like we are sometimes. But the reality is that they're not messed up by the materialism yet. So there is, on the other hand, we should not follow their pattern. We should realize that, that godliness is something that is extremely profitable if we focus on the things eternal. But we ought to realize that we're not taking any of the things that are temporal with us. Nothing that is temporal is going with us. It's only what's in your soul. So... Where should our focus be? Should it be on storing up treasure now, or should it be on storing up treasure for eternity? I know how, I know how Christ answered that. I hope I know how you're going to answer it too. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. There's nothing wrong again with setting goals. There's nothing wrong with having a desire to build your portfolio. But again, it has to be subordinate to a desire to glorify God. That's all this is saying. Verse 10 is probably one of the most misunderstood, misquoted verses in the New Testament. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money, the love of money, the priority of money, placing money at the center of your life. And if it's not money, it's things. Placing things at the center of your life. That is the source 
of many different kinds of evil. Not just one. Many different errors that can come for when something other than Jesus Christ enjoys the priority in your life, then you're going to run into problems. And some by longing for material things, if, if I can insert that there, I think it's fair within the context, have wandered away from the faith. Well, that's what will happen. If the faith is here, if Jesus Christ is here and you say, I'm going to set you aside for just a minute. I'll be back to you. I just need to make my fortune first. And guess what? When I make my fortune, I'm going to give a lot of it to the church. No, you won't. So don't, so don't even tell me that. Don't tell anybody. Don't just keep it to yourself because it's not going to happen. If you went off chasing your fortune and forgetting Jesus Christ... Why do you think after you get it and you're way over here now, that you're going to oh, you know what? I think I need to remember what was over there. You won't do it. You're going to wander away from the faith. You're going to spend your time on earth on things that are temporal and not eternal. And then one day, one day you're going to be laying in bed, whether at home or in the hospital, and you're going to hear them whispering over in the corner. And they're going to be saying, you know, I don't know how much time he's got. And the doctor's going to say, well, you know what? The signs are starting to turn now. And I think probably he'll, uh, he'll be with the Lord before the day's out. Now, can you say like Stonewall Jackson did? Good. Can't wait. Are you going to be frightened to death because you realize you spent your entire life pursuing things that are going to stay down here? This doesn't mean you need to pack the bags and go on a missionary trip. That may not be for you, but you may need to get down on your knees and pray for some missionaries. It doesn't mean you need to give up your job. It doesn't, need you, it doesn't mean that you need to do what a friend of mine was told to do in Dallas a number of years back. Very well-known pastor up there, nobody from DTS, by the way. well-known pastor up there told his young, yuppie congregation, young, wealthy, yuppie congregation, that they should go home and they should sell their homes they should sell those luxury cars they had. Donate that money. This is the passage he was using. Donate that money to the church so they could build a new youth center. She asked me what she should do. I said, you should find another church. Because that's, you see what this guy did? He just twisted it around. He went into the false teacher category because he did not agree with sound doctrine. No, the problem's not money. The problem is focus. If God has blessed you with, with incredible financial resources, thank him for it. And then consider how, the, how he wants you to use it for his glory. If he hasn't, thank him for it. And focus, focus upon him for the food and covering, for the food and clothing and the shelter that's this over our head. Thank him that gas prices have dropped by about 80 cents a gallon over the last little bit. Maybe it'll let you come to church more often. I don't know. I know that's a concern. But many, because they long for material things. They just can't have enough of it. You know what? If you make your first million, because I've talked to people this way. You make a million, if that's what you're after, it's not enough. You're going to have to have two. You make two, it's not enough. You've got to have four. If that's what you're longing for, there's never enough money if that's the focus of your life. But if Jesus Christ is the focus of your life, if he's at the center, if everything you do revolves around him, then yeah, there'll be a point in time of contentment. And let God decide how much money you put in your bank account. And then you decide how you're supposed to use that. 
They pierced themselves with many a pang. I almost, almost uh, uh, picture this as someone sticking themselves with their own sword. Nobody else pierced them. Who did it? They did it to themselves. So now you see the contrast in verses 3 through 10. You have false teachers that reject the clear teaching of the apostles Jesus and Jesus Christ. And how arrogant that is. Paul says, yeah, it's arrogant. It's conceited. And because of that conceit, they get so wrapped up in the trivialities, the, the little details, the, the whether we should celebrate birthdays or not. What day was Christ born on? I mean, he wasn't born on December 25th. Maybe he was, maybe, maybe he wasn't. You want, you want to pick a different date? Have at it. I'm not going to argue with you over that, because neither one of us know. But was he born of a virgin? Was he the king of kings and lord of lords? Was he sovereign from the cradle? That'll stand on. Whether he was born on the 25th or January 6th, I don't care. I celebrate December 25th because that's what the church has celebrated all the way back to the second century, and that's fine with me. If it's the wrong date, that's fine. I didn't celebrate my birthday on my birthday this year. I celebrated a few days later, and that was fine with me. Let's don't get wrapped up in the trivialities. Let's focus our focus where it should be. And then all these other things are going to work out. So that's the contrast. The contrast between the attitude of the false teachers, who at its core was conceit and love for money, and what, what the Apostle Paul himself had to learn, and that is to be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself, keeping your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporal. It doesn't mean that you should neglect your body. It doesn't mean that you should let your grass grow in your front yard. That's a bad witness, too. I'm serious. That's a bad Christian testimony. You need to do the best you have, the best you, the best you can do with that which you have. But as soon as you start longing for what somebody else has, and longing to the extent that you get your eyes off of Christ and onto that, then you're going to pierce yourself, you're going to stab your own self in the heart. And that's not where you want to be. Well, more on this as we continue on next time.